Good morning. I love getting new family. So hello. <laughs> now let's hang out or do something fun. Uh, man, it's a joy and a gift and an honor to get to be with you guys today, honestly, um, for lots of reasons. But I just want to say uh, your team is just so wonderful. I got to spend some time with some of your leaders last night. And uh, I just want to tell you, because I think it's important to always get this kind of feedback, your leaders are slightly I mean, relatively normal. And I think that's helpful for you to know. I mean, you know how sometimes you're wondering, like, do they always, are they, you know what, a little weird, but totally great. Uh, so it was so much fun getting to be with them. And uh, it just made being here that much sweeter. Um, you know, I got to meet Ash and Gare, well, Gare before, then Ash more recently. And I just, there's, they're two of the most generous people uh, I've met just by way of who they are. So, man, I just can't imagine what a gift they are to your community. I hope you know that. I know it's annoying when people come and tell you how great your leaders are, but they're great. So that's good news in today's day and age. I need to share a little bit with you about myself or why it's really significant that I'm here today. And it all starts in the year 1992. Uh, I was seven years old, you can do that math, and uh, though the film had been out for over a year, I remember sitting down with my family for the first time and seeing a movie that would change, really radically kind of solidify and shape for me my view of love, marriage, weddings, and Diane Keaton. Some of you have noticed I'm wearing a big white shirt today, and that's in honor of Diane. Uh, Father of the Bride was, uh, for me, one of those films that shaped me as a woman. I was a young girl being shaped, and the picture I saw painted, for me, was what I thought life was supposed to be like, actually was going to look like. When I dreamed of my future, it looked like that. It dreamed of a super kind of 90s flared fiance uh, who would make a little flub and buy me a blender. Uh, I was thinking about this funny, aggressive dad who occasionally ends up in jail, a doting mom, an eccentric wedding planner, and a church wedding that would compete with every Hallmark movie that was ever made. Weddings, marriage, lifelong love, that was the dream, and ironically, and not, it was born for me in this very room. If you didn't know, this is the church that was used in the movie Father of the Bride. Yep, dreams are coming true this morning, people. Now, it's a bit ironic that I'm here teaching on singleness and a little bit disappointing. Uh, but a dream fulfilled nonetheless. Let's just, I mean, anyone, I came in here earlier, none of you were in, I just stood like this. I just was trying to take it in, it's so good to finally be here, honestly, a dream. I was talking to my mom, she's like, tell me what it's like, you know, I'm like, it's so good. Uh, I even saw the original colors this morning of the building, it's unbelievable. Love, romance, marriage, this we're told is the formula for not only a happy, but a truly fulfilled life. These are the messages you find not only in the church, but in culture at large. And even the grumpiest and most cynical and self-actualized among us can't deny the power of a good love story. Which begs the question, what does happiness and fulfillment look like for those of us without one? When your story is not much of a fairy tale, and perhaps it's even a disaster. And instead of the dream, you get the disappointment. 
What do we do when our story by the standard of the culture we live in is somehow, whether stated or just politely implied, incomplete? And where does all that fit into the kingdom of God, into the beauty and the bounty that's on offer from Jesus? Where does marriage, and more specifically single, and all the the spaces in between that, fit? Today, we're going to talk a bit about that. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 19. Now, we're going to jump right into the text, and it's going to seem a bit weird. Are you all right with that? I'm a guest teacher, so I thought, let's just get weird with it. You know, they'll either have me back or they won't, and it'll be fun regardless. Um, It is a little bit of a weird text, but I am going to ask you to hang with me and to trust me. We're family now, so I hope that's established. Um, Now, before we jump in, I just want to give you a little context so you're not totally hanging out there on the limb. Um, We're picking up in a section of Scripture that is ultimately all about Jesus' journey to give his life away on the cross. And uh, it's also about the call for his disciples to take up their cross, to die in order that they may experience true life. Now, that context is really important, especially because this chapter as a whole centers all about and all around relational life in the kingdom, specifically the relationships you have with one another, like Gary was just talking about, brothers and sisters, the family. So with that context, will you look down with me at uh, chapter 19, starting at verse 11? We read, Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have, made, who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them, but the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Now, easy enough. I can imagine if you are a little bit like me right now, you're thinking, how is this going to go? And uh, maybe more accurately, how does this apply to me? But again, trust me, this text, I think, has a lot less to do with relationship statuses and more to do with how we relate to one another in the kingdom. So let's look at it line by line, and then I promise we're going to get to the meaty part. Can Can you ride with me until then? Why am I saying weird stuff like that? Can you ride? Anyway, let's ride in the text together and not say it again. Verse 11, Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. All right, so we're picking up, if you're like, that's confusing. It is. We're picking up here in the middle of a response. Prior to verse 11, the disciples had just asked Jesus if it was better not to marry in light of his rigorous teachings on marriage and divorce. And you'll notice that he doesn't dissuade or contradict them. But frankly, he implies they have drawn the right conclusion. Marriage, as he presents it, is not easy. It's hard. And so in verse 11, he says it won't be the best path for everyone. And in that, we find Jesus commending singleness. Now, he goes on to say that not everyone can accept this teaching. And the word accept here can be translated to make room for. So not everyone can make room for this teaching. And the phrase, this word, means what he's about to say. Verse 12, for there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who chose to li- choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Now, 
Here, Jesus uses the model of eunuch, which, by the way, can be translated single, unmarried persons, to describe those in the family who do not marry. And I want you to note the three categories he mentions. First, he says there are eunuchs who were born that way. The language here is a bit cryptic, but scholars believe that Jesus is referring to those for whom marriage to a member of the opposite opposite sex for life is not a valid option. And even more likely as people who did not think about sexual orientation as a fixed way, in a fixed way as we do today. He's likely referring to uh, what we would call people who are intersex. Intersex people um, are and were a very small percentage of the population. And as we see it here beautifully, we see the emphasis from Jesus that they are just as important to God as the majority. Eunuchs uh, who have been made uh, eunuchs by others. This is the second thing he points out to us. It's very common. It was very common in the ancient Mediterranean, particularly in the Greco-Roman culture, for a master to castrate a male slave so he could serve the women of the house for the harem. Yep, some of you are just entering into that, and I appreciate it. Uh, makes sense. You do the math, and that's, that's a different kind of eunuch. Uh, Not so much that we have here today, at least in America. And then third, and this is important, there's a eunuch he describes as those who have chosen to live like eunuchs, meaning to live single and celibate, practicing abstinence um, so that uh, they could really lean into their fidelity to Jesus and really lean into his idea of what relationship um, in the kingdom of God looked like. And he says they do this all for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, these categories don't shock us necessarily. We kind of, we kind of get it. Um, but at the time, the concept of singleness was a wildly provocative and revolutionary idea that Jesus was speaking to, particularly in a culture where it was assumed that if you were a good Jewish man or woman, you would marry and have a family. That was the precedent of the day. And yet, here we find Jesus, one of the first teachers, not only in Israel, but in human history by virtue of his own life, holding out that the single life is a viable option for human flourishing. I want you to notice that he uses the word given in our text, and this can imply a lot of things, but scholars agree that it predominantly reflects the reality that singleness is a gift, like it's actually a good thing. And this gift, this good gift, it sits side by side as we see even just a few verses back with the gift of marriage. Both good, both gifts, both esteemed and both given dignity and meaning. Scholar Dale Bruner put it this way. He said, Jesus places the single life next to the married life in co-equal dignity. Both are gifts. Both have God as their source behind and through all life experiences. And so both are protected and celebrated by Jesus. Now, I want to offer you just a few thoughts and observations before I move on. Is that okay? Great, because I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, It's important to note that the singleness that Jesus is referring to here is again a gift, but it is also a choice. So it won't be for everyone, but it will be for some, and that matters. Often hear single people speak of their singleness as though it's an affliction or a burden, or even some of them act as though it's inconsequential. And while I do get the emotional realities of those sentiments, I often wonder at the root of their pain, at the root of their lament. Because whether lifelong or temporary, singleness, at least as we see it here, is not something to begrudge or to minimize, but it's actually something to be embraced, something to be qualified and quantified as valuable and good, not only to God, but to the family of God. 
Now, second, I think it's important that we see that the teaching of Jesus here is calling into question the worship and idolatry of the institution of marriage, both in their day and in ours. It's easy to read a text like this within its Eastern patriarchal lens and marvel at the boldness of Jesus in this moment. But his words sit no less true for us today, particularly for those of us in the West and the church in the West. The point here is that Jesus in this text is restructuring the value or the framework for communal life in the kingdom, and that is the standout point. In one teaching, he is disrupting the social scale of life and society as a whole by ascribing lateral value to singleness. He is moving all the hearers to consider relational wholeness through a new means, not simply through marriage, but through and with God himself. And in that, he's calling disciples, all disciples, to live interdependently and mutually and with humility, not on their own relationships or marital status, but in union and fellowship and connection with God himself. Good news. Third and finally, is everyone doing okay? It's hard to read the room with the masks on. Could you take them off? I'm just, that's a joke. That's bad, maybe a bad joke. In, uh, in this text, we find what scholars call an uh, apocalyptic disruption. Sounds like a good movie, don't you? So maybe someone needs to take that. I don't know. I'm in LA. I'm feeling like everybody's a movie person. Uh, apocalyptic disruption. Now that sounds fancy, but it really just means that Jesus is actually here calling the listeners to look forward towards the vision of what will be when the kingdom comes in full. And in that, an invitation to expand their vision for relational life and flourishing in the kingdom of God. Have you heard of the marriage supper of the Lamb? Okay, maybe, maybe you want to speak about it. <laughs> this is what it's referring to. It's calling us forward to the book of Revelation when all things are made new and we feast together wholly in the presence of God. Okay, I'm, I'm in for that day. Now, I've given you a lot of really good theology and um, framework, but uh, I think if, if I were you, I'd be sitting here thinking, let's get to the question, Red. Uh, you know, let's get to what we're really after, which is... Um, what if I'm single, but I don't want to be? What if I hear this teaching, and I, I just think it's great that Jesus was like, see, it's good, but I don't actually feel like it's good. I feel like there's something wrong. Well, I'm glad you asked that. Um, exegetically from the text, there's not a lot to say, but when it comes to what I believe Jesus is getting at, the heart of our text, there is a lot to be said. So first and foremost, Remember that singleness as we see it, apart from some unique and rare circumstance, is a choice. It's not a mandate, which means that some will accept the teaching in the words of Jesus and others, myself included, will want something more. And that's okay. I often talk with single people who are scared senseless that God will call them just a life of singleness or celibacy. And uh, the truth is, if you're freaking out about the question, you're probably not called to it. Uh, that's just like a best practice. Um, but I really do think that every disciple of Jesus should ask the question of singleness, of fidelity to Jesus, and not fear the outcome because, like we see here in the life of our rabbi, singleness is and can be very good. And that's not just a pleasantry or truth or something I get paid to say. It's true. If we accept this is the word of God, then we accept that that is right and true, and there's true goodness for us. The call here isn't just uh, to wait it out, as we're kind of in the in-between, those of us who desire singleness. 
But instead, it is to fully embrace the fact that your singleness or my singleness is not a deferment or a concession or a secondary rank, but again, a gift that contributes to the good of others and the kingdom of God. So first question, what do you do? You live your life. Live your life. Get out and make the most of it. Love Jesus. Live your life for him. Don't fight it. Enjoy it. Go places. Travel. See the world. Volunteer at your church. Get an education. Get your nails done. Sleep in. The sky's the limit. You've got a lot of things you can do. Uh, and, and you can't forget the benefits. It's so good. There's a lot of things that you get to do that's really unique to your life. Life doesn't, isn't put on hold because we're single. It should be something we're going after, exploring and celebrating to the fullness and glory of God. That's the invitation we find in this text. It's life to the full, not a life on hold. So if your life isn't feeling full, you have to ask what's holding you back. What's keeping you from receiving in full what's on offer and what's being given? Now, second, uh, we don't just stop there. We live our lives, but we also, we seek, we ask, and we knock. You'll remember, I don't know if you will, but a few chapters back, we find these words given to us by Jesus. It's an invitation to ask him for what we desire, what we long for, what we want. We seek him and his will for our lives, his dreams, his destinies for us, and we knock And we knock, and we knock again, and we keep asking the Lord for what we want to see him do. There is an open invitation from Jesus for you to give him your desires and then to trust him for how he's going to accomplish it going forward. Okay. Now, I want to say this because I think it's annoying when preachers do this kind of thing. Um, When they say this to us and then they're like, next point. You know, it's like, what? Because there are a lot of us in the room who hear that this morning, and it's frustrating to hear. And... um. I just have to do this because it's good for you to know. I know I look 28, (laughs) but I am a solid 36, which is hard to believe. Um, A Hollywood face right here in front of you. I know what it is to ask. I think I've been asking since I had breath that the Lord would give such a gift. So I do know how frustrating it is at times to hear someone say something like that especially if you're in a tender place this morning. But I also want to say to you that no one knows the complexities of your desires and longings better than Jesus. No one. He is, in my opinion, the only one I'm willing to entrust all of that to. Because his invitation for our asking is all set under this framework and reality that he is the only one who can actually give what we most long for. And he never gives bad gifts ever. So I'm, I'm asking him, and even though it costs me something, because I do have to acknowledge to you that this isn't easy. There are seasons where asking and knocking and seeking is really difficult. Um, it's still worth it, because um, in your asking, you'll be journeying through the space of faith. And I know also that faith is not always easy to come by, but as you risk in prayer, even if it's a breath prayer. I do believe and I know that God has so much for you. So I would just say to you, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, and trust him, and try him, and test him, and then wait long enough to see how he answers. Third, and finally, we live holy lives in the meantime. 
I'm going to borrow some language from a previous generation and from the Catholic Church to explain a bit about what I mean. There is a word that I think is helpful when you're living within your longing in singleness, and that word is chastity. Hey, all right. Everybody heard of a chastity belt historically? I think you need to share with these people about that. Uh, someone's like, did she say charity? I'm into it. <laughs> no? Wake up, Todd. Uh, The church is going on. Chastity. I know it sounds weird, but I promise it's got a really beautiful meaning. Chastity or being chaste is both a temperance, a posture, and a practice that embraces the framework for holiness and sexuality. And that is both in thought and in deed. It is a virtue. It's something that we hold to, not for the sake of accomplishing a task or religious virtue, uh, but because we believe that it actually leads to more life and honestly, better sex. Chastity, or the practice of abstaining from sex, again, in every way, in your mind, what you put into your being, before marriage, it may sound antiquated, especially in our day and age, and I know that, um, is still, I think, for the disciple of Jesus, a non-negotiable. If we believe Jesus' words to be true, and I'm trusting him for life after this life. Anybody else? Um, So I'd like to take him at his word, because I'm trusting him for a pretty... Dang big thing, you know. Um, If we're going to trust him and take him at his word, um, then in this invitation, we have to trust that the surrender will be worth it. And I know sometimes it feels impossible, but again, he promises good behind it. Um, And I I just, again, want to say this. The good that's on offer isn't like, well, you'll just make it to the altar, like grit your teeth and bear it, whipping yourself all the way uh, to it. The good that's on offer is marked by true freedom and life of the Holy Spirit. And that's radical. That's what's on offer, even in your obedience to him, your fidelity, and your chastity. Now, often people ask me how I practice abstinence, especially now being in my younger 30s. And um, honestly, people are so weird in those conversations. I know some of you seeing people are like, yeah, it gets really, you know, it's like, how are you? How how are you on Saturday nights? Like, it's weird. It's like, I'm fine. I, uh, should I? Is something else, you know, going on? Uh, so I have all these weird conversations with people, especially as a pastor, like, oh, interesting. So your husband's not here? And I'm like, well, he might be. I don't know. I never know. I never know. <laughs> now, people do ask a lot, like, how do you do it? And it's not just, you know, is it because you're a pastor? I mean, it, I'm still a person. That's the weird that you're still a person. Um, And I think this best represents why and how, and it's this. I've come to this over the last couple years. Um, When I said yes to Jesus, I said yes to a covenant with him, like marriage. I said yes to him at a young age, and I am chaste or abstinent because of the covenant I am already in, not because I hope to be in one one day. I'm chaste because I'm already in union. And just like if I had a husband, I want to honor him and be faithful to him because that's what I've already said yes to. Does that make sense? So I'm no longer working from a deficit. I'm working from a full tank in that respect. Does that make sense? So that's what we're after. And listen, I'm not up here going like, and it's easy, (laughs) breezy. Uh, Fidelity is a hard practice for all of us in the church and in the family. But for those who are single, it starts here. Um, This text is not an indictment for the single person, and it isn't coming from someone who doesn't actually understand the wrestle. These are the words of Jesus, your rabbi, who lived a single life until his death. 
The words given to us here are actually a beacon of hope. They are a signpost to us that human flourishing in every relational sense is available not only to those in marriages, but to everyone. Now, with that said, it's not without its struggle and ache, and I'm not just talking uh, to single people here. Since our earliest years on this earth, we've been given a story or a narrative about the relational life that, if we're honest, is very different and even contradicts the one we're being told here by Jesus. Marriage is often best described as a happily ever after. It is at least the way the world presents it, a, if not the paradigm, for the climax of the fulfillment of life. You've finally done it. And therein lies our problem. Because in both marriage and singleness, we will over time discover this isn't true. I bet, I would bet some, at least money, I don't have a ton, but I got some, that you married people know what I'm talking about. You know, you don't have to do a little side eye. I see someone be like, see, John? You know, like, <laughs> I get to see it. Don't do that. Just do it in the car later. Uh, culturally speaking, it seems that any ethic that asks anyone to live without the romantic ideal or future is at best unfair and at worst unbearable. So we have to reconcile, we as God's people, have to really reconcile that with what we just read in our text here. And the truth is, that sentiment far more, uh, points far more to our idolatry of marriage and relationship, as I mentioned earlier, both by single and married people alike, than it does to our understanding of true communal life in the kingdom. You see, for centuries, much of what people have assumed about singleness is that it is, in fact, the abstinence or the absence of good things, meaningful things, deep things, things like family and sex and intimacy, that it is, even though most would never say it, at least to your face, the epitome of the scarlet letter of the lonely life. And while we want to push against that idea, I know, even you're going, no, that's not how I feel. Or, or we want to say that we've progressed societally beyond that, especially those of us in the church, myself included. It is a narrative that many of us in the family carry, whether we know it consciously or not. And it is the result of a misplaced truth. The way this way of thinking has led to a lot of crazy and distorted and injurious lies emphasizing half-truths about individuals and catalyzing a destructive theology that says God is not as good as he says, and that there is an expressed value system different from the inaugurated reality that Jesus himself implemented. Hear me when I say that narrative is anti-gospel and it is anti-kingdom, and it has wrongfully set us at odds with each other, whether we're consciously speaking about it or not. It's filled our minds and hearts with comparison not compassion. All throughout the New Testament scriptures, we find the strongest metaphor for the community of the disciples of Jesus, and that is that of family or the body, which implies that we weren't free to only care about one part of the body. We actually have to care for the whole. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 that for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We are a body, a family, and we belong to each other, which means that what happens to one part of us will affect all of us. I need to know your life as a person who is married and following Jesus, and you need to know what life is like for me as a single person who is following Jesus. 
Not because I need to stay up with the latest gossip, though that's fun. Uh, not in a sinful way, uh, but because we need to move, I think, really to a fuller understanding of the presence of God in each other's lives. That's the invitation here. I have a stake in your marriages, and you have a stake in my singleness. My pastor, Tyler, and his wife, Kirsten, know the ups and downs of my single life, the very real challenges, practically and emotionally speaking, that I face. And I, equally so, at a lot of levels, know the challenges and the joys of their marriage because it matters to all of us. Their marriage affects me, and my singleness affects them. This text, while speaking directly to those who are in the family who are single, is actually for everyone, married and single alike. Because it's here that we find Jesus placing value on both marriage and singleness. Not so everyone can feel really good about themselves and fit into some category, but so that we would instead see and really be free to embrace the ethic that says relationship with God is our first sufficiency. All of us. And then from that place to be free to come together under Jesus and act like and live like true family. Not separated or insulated by our statuses, but integrated and known and loved for who we are and where we are. Part of embracing Jesus' teaching here will mean letting go of and maybe even repenting of the old way of thinking, one that elevates relational status over and against the theological reality that we can't find satisfaction for our souls in anything but in Christ alone. The call here is to embrace a more robust and integrated picture of what life in the kingdom of God is meant to be. And for those of us single people in the room, that is relieving. That's a folding in kind of moment. Now, look back with me, if you will, at uh, our passage. Look down at verse 13. Then the people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Uh, this seems like a little odd appendage, but I am going somewhere, I promise. In verse 13, we see that the people begin to bring their children to Jesus. And this was common practice in the day. Parents often brought their children to be blessed by a holy man. But then we see the disciples wrongly rebuke and try to keep the children from him, assuming that they didn't have claim to Jesus' attention. But in fact, we read it was actually quite the opposite. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven belonged to them. And in an act of what some scholars think is a commissioning or a blessing, he lays his hands on them and then he sends them out. Now, this uh, is a real story about Jesus' life and his ministry and his love and his care for children. But many scholars have also speculated that it could also be an intentional literary image that reiterates and reflects what Jesus has been after this whole time. We see that there will be people for whom most of us would assume have no right to the kingdom, whether it be through our bias or prejudice or assumption, people that are different from us in relational status or otherwise. And we see that they are often the exact ones Jesus wants to use to make his kingdom known. We also see that many believe, um, we see what, what many believe to be a provocative statement of Jesus' uh, idea of family and the family of God. And in that, he's showing us that one doesn't have to grow a family biologically. But in fact, the kingdom of heaven doesn't only grow by biological ascription, but also through witness and conversion and discipleship. 
And finally, we see our call as the family of God, single or married, to be like the children, but also to be faithful to live well in the kingdom so that no one would be hindered in their coming to Jesus. This discourse of Jesus calls us to challenge the norms, to push against what culture says we should be or what we should expect or what we should feel or what we should lean into, into the greater reality of the kingdom of God, trusting that the deaths we die along the way will lead to a greater and truer life. This is an invitation for God's people to come together and to be family in a way that transcends the barriers that are set up by culture and to experience life to the full, not just as individuals, but as God's people together. Something happens when we come together as a family, something unique. Something happens as you gather here on Sunday mornings. Uh, The Spirit of God has access to you in a way that's just different when God's people show up in a room and he is after this. This is how revivals happen. This is how churches change. This is how cities change when people come together and encounter the presence of God together as a family. Now, I believe the words uh, of Jesus here are compelling. I do, and I'm after them. Um, I always think he's so compelling, but so a little biased. And also, I told you we were married, so there we are. Um, But I think they're compelling because I think they're telling a better story than anything culture has ever said to you or me. And I'm not saying that because I'm a pastor. I'm saying that because I'm radically in touch with the realities of what has been laid out for us today in the passage. I'm single, and it's been hard, not just because I have lonely weeks or years, but because the ache and isolation of it is multifaceted, and I know that. Uh, It's a different and complex space that I find myself in. I'm not ignorant uh, of the prejudice or the luxury of my situation. I'm not unaware of the assumptions people make or the tidal waves of insecurities and accusations that the enemy throws at me on a daily basis. And if I had to get my guess, neither are you. But I have committed in my heart, and I am actually very unwilling to let that deter me from the greatest gifts of the kingdom, married or single. I am unwilling to miss what God is after, and uh, I'm fierce about it. So wherever you find yourself in this teaching today, I want to say to you that there's an invitation to land somewhere in it. To experience and receive something from the Lord, whether you're single or you're married today, there is an invitation for you to move closer in and to experience the realities and power of the kingdom. Now, um, I'm going to end just now, but I want to offer just a few things. I was praying for you. I got to pray for your community a few months before I got to come here because I've known for a little bit. Um, And I just want to throw these out there as an invitation for you to consider before the Lord um, in light of this teaching. I I think that... um, and I say this with humility, that there could be room for us today to move to and towards repentance. I mean, some of us, from even the subtle, this is in me, I had to do this this morning at 5 a.m. before most of you were even awake. You were like, we haven't even brunched yet. I know, I was up. Um, But really repent of the idolatry of relationships that we carry. Um, Some of us might need to repent of the ways we viewed one another You know how easy it is to objectify one another, even in subtle ways? That's the scheme of the enemy. To really look at one another requires sometimes a discipline of the heart and the mind. And there's an invitation for that 
today. Maybe we need to repent of the ways we've really failed to love one another. And repent's such a strong word, but sometimes it's just like, God have mercy, help me to do it better. Um, And maybe that's the invitation today. I also wonder if some of you, and I was even thinking about this when Gare shared earlier, if there are just some of you who just need to be met by Jesus' comfort today. It's just been a tough season. It's the holiday season. That brings up a lot of stuff for a lot of us, maybe within your singleness. Um, But maybe you just need someone to hold up faith for you today. And even that's worth coming forward and seeking the Lord and asking for God to meet you in that place. And then still, I just have a sense that maybe God wants to encourage some of us into a greater sense of our identity and our place in the kingdom of God. And and maybe even encourage us to take greater authority, to take greater ground in who it is and what it is that Jesus has called us to do and to be. So um, we're going to respond now, I think, to the Holy Spirit. And um, yeah, bless you as you invite the Spirit to help you come and consider these things.